Now, we've been going through, at least I've been going through the book of Acts of the Apostles for the last several years. And Paul's on a journey from Caesarea Philippi, which is on the coast of Israel, to Rome, where he has to defend himself against trumped-up charges that the unbelieving Jews in Judea have made against him. And he's taken on a ship. He's a prisoner in chains, guarded by the Roman centurion Julius and some Roman soldiers. Against Paul's advice, their ship leaves the shelter of Crete at the start of winter weather. Now, we've all seen the effects of powerful storms this weekend, haven't we? And a terrible storm hits Paul's ship. Acts 27 verse 20 says, When neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Paul's status on board the ship changes from mere prisoner to the one being listened to by the centurion. Paul preached, Paul prayed, God answered. And he told Paul that even though they had given up all hope of being saved, that Paul still would testify to the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome and that God had graciously given Paul the lives of all on board the ship. After 14 days in the storm, the ship runs aground on rocks by an island, and it starts to break up in the violent waves. All have to jump overboard and head for land, either by swimming or by clinging to debris. And so opens chapter 28. Washed up on the island of Malta, verse 1. When they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. Now we're going to look at three things. Grace, judgment and blessing. Paul describes the islanders in verse 2 as bar- barbarians. Uh, in, the, uh, the, in New King James that I've got here, it says natives, but the, um, if, there's a little mark, and if you read what it says, it says literally barbarians. A barbarian is someone who is perceived to be either uncivilized or primitive. How will these uncivilized, primitive native islanders treat the shipwrecked survivors as they lie on the beach, exhausted in the cold and pouring rain? Will they kill them and plunder their goods whilst they're virtually helpless? Paul and the others are surprised that they are treated with unusual kindness. Their immediate needs are met. They are made welcome. And a fire is built to warm and dry them. 
And we see the islanders showing the kindness of common grace to all the ship's company. And we can learn a lot from them. So these uncivilized, uncivilized islanders showed unusual kindness 2,000 years ago. It's an example of common grace. Now, common grace results from being made by God, who is himself good, kind, merciful, and gracious. And all of God's creation reflects the character of God who made it. We see, for instance, the indiscriminate kindness of God's common grace in the rain and the sunshine that falls upon the just and the unjust. We see evidence of common grace in the beauty of a sunset or the grandeur of the starry skies. And we, mankind, have an extra helping of common grace compared to any other created object. Because people, all mankind, have been made in the very image of God. And the remnant and influence of being made in God's image resides in us all, fallen creatures that we are. Any and all behaviour or product of men and women that mirrors either God's truth or God's character is from the common grace of God dwelling in us. The restraint of evil and the power of sin in the world is the result, for instance, of God's common grace. So common grace results from the image of God that is in all mankind. And these Maltese islanders long ago, they were not saved men or saved women, yet they displayed unusual kindness to all these shipwrecked souls. And it's an example of common grace. So I've got a question for everybody here, saved and unsaved. How well do you reflect the image of God to your fellow man? Is it apparent in you and your actions? Have you the stamp of your maker upon you? When did we, when did you, when did I, when did we last show common grace kindness to anyone? Hmm? Verse 2 of Acts 28, the natives showed us unusual kindness for they kindled the fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. The Maltese showed immediate practical kindness to all, all 276. Hundreds of refugees suddenly land on a beach near you. Eh? They suddenly land hundreds of refugees on the beach near you or me. They're soaking wet and exhausted 
from swimming to shore. They're emotionally drained after being on a rubber inflatable boat tossed by the waves. It's raining and it's cold. What are you going to do? You're going to leave it to the others, as usual. Leviticus 19.33, which I read before. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what are you and I going to do for them that is an act of kindness reflecting the God who made us? That's a challenge, isn't it? So when did we last show common grace kindness to anyone? Perhaps you feel you've got no opportunity to display common grace. Well, we might say, no one has been shipwrecked in my backyard this last week. So what about your attitude to those who have been washed up on our shores recently? Hmm? What's your attitude towards people in this position? How do we treat those who are less fortunate than ourselves, who are the victims of calamity? Are we moved by the plight of others? Or do we turn a blind eye? Do we look the other way and move on? It's easy to have this attitude, isn't it? You know, as we drive down the motorway, and I've done it time and again myself, you drive down the motorway and you see a car, you know, you're doing 70 miles an hour, everything's wonderful. You see a car broken down on the hard shoulder. And as we speed by, we ask ourselves, I wonder what they did wrong. Shouldn't we rather be saying, there but for the grace of God, go I. But often we look at other people, and perhaps like these islanders, think that something bad's happened to them, and it's justice just catching up with them. When did you, when did we, when did I show anyone unusual kindness? Matthew 25, 45. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whenever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. What a rebuke. Is that awaiting us? So the uncivilized islanders showed unusual kindness 2,000 years ago. It's an example of God's common grace in them. Do we show common grace kindness? Now recipients of God's greater grace I believe, must display common grace. How, can we be recipients 
Have you ever asked yourself this question? How can we, can we be recipients of God's irresistible grace? Can we be recipients of God's particular grace? Being remade in Christ's image and yet not display God's common grace? How can we say we are recipients of God's greater grace and not display the evidence of his lesser graces in our lives? Surely that would be a nonsense because the Lord Jesus Christ makes it plain that if we are faithful in the lesser, then we shall be faithful in the greater. So, let's ask ourselves, do we display the common grace of God in our dealings with each other, with those we know, and also with the strangers amongst us, particularly the needy strangers? We must follow the example we have been set. And in verse 7 of Acts 28, we see that the leading man in the island, the Roman governor Publius, sets the example that the ordinary citizen has followed so wonderfully in verse 2. He looks after them all for three days, hospitably and courteously. And the islanders have done that in verse 2. They've followed their leader. And those saved by the greater grace of God must follow the example set by our leader, that gracious saviour of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should show God's common grace and kindness to each and all he did. Do we play follow my leader? The uncivilised Malteser did. Judgment. The islanders have made a fire to warm those shipwrecked. Paul, never one to be a louch, plays his part in keeping the fire burning, verse 3. But out of the bundle of sticks that he gathers, a snake comes out, and the viper, it says, fastened itself on Paul's hand. Is Paul a goner? If, you know, we, we all believe in justice and judgment, verse 4. And if almost immediately after Paul has escaped death by drowning, Paul is bitten by a deadly snake and so will die, surely this is because Paul must be a particularly bad person, a murderer or such. And the islanders think that the justice of providence has inevitably caught up with him because of his past. To the islanders, it looks like justice is catching up with Paul. Common grace has given them a clear sense of right and wrong. 
of a sure and certain judgment for the wicked, for all evildoers. And it rings true both to them and to us, doesn't it? We all believe in justice and judgment for evildoers. And sometimes we say, oh, he's got his comeuppance. And we have a great sense of satisfaction, don't we? When the baddie is defeated in the film or the book, we enjoy seeing goodness triumph. And it rings true to us and our conscience. And yet, and yet in this world, we see it happen so very rarely don't we? We all believe in justice and judgment, but actually there's no justice in this world. There's no inevitable law of justice in this world. And whilst it's a powerfully strong principle in us that wickedness must not go unpunished, that justice must be done, that right must triumph, the evil must and will be punished, we rarely see it in this life, in this present world. Recently in the UK, in fact it was only this week, it was said that only 1.3% of all rapes reported to the police lead to a prosecution. That's just one out of every 75 rape cases reported to the police lead to a prosecution. Not that the, the, um, the accused was found guilty or not. So that doesn't sound like justice, does it? That one out of 75 cases, only one out of 75 cases winds up in court. The evidence of our eyes and of our TV and newspapers is that people get away with doing wrong. The evidence of our hearts and of our conscience is that this should not be so. And if we were strictly logical, strictly scientific, we would ditch the whole idea of right and wrong if we only go by the evidence of our eyes because it is experimentally not the case that justice triumphs. So we see there is no justice in this life. And therefore we know instinctively that there is judgment in the next life. We know deep down that wrongdoers must expect judgment. Justice shall be vindicated did Hitler, did Stalin get away with it? They certainly left this world unpunished, didn't they? But shall dictators today escape justice? No, for in entrance to the next world, there is an immediate righteous judgment of everyone. The Bible teaches it's appointed for men once to die, and then the judgment. Believer and unbeliever alike, we all talk about those dying going to a better world. Well, it is a better world, the next world, because goodness, truth, 
justice are upheld there and evil and wickedness are punished. Yet we fear death, don't we? When we go to a better world. We fear death because we are sinners. And we rightly should fear the coming judgment as sinners in the hands of a holy God. Now, preaching ju judgment is good. Preaching judgment is good. It makes sense of right and wrong. And that's so ingrained in our God-given conscience. Indeed, parents, how dare you teach, our, how dare we teach our children right from wrong if we do not also teach them that final and complete accounting for every thought and deed and word. Preaching judgment is good because it teaches us about the character of the judge who is good, who is righteous, who is holy, perfect and all-powerful. And it speaks to us of the judge's function to be in possession of all the facts and to weigh every act and dispense judgment, sentencing the guilty to their deserved punishment in hell. I've spoken about common grace, but there is no common grace in those who are in hell. It has all been stripped away at the judgment. There's no trace of God's good image in their character. Those in hell are without love, without beauty, without hope, eternally lost. They are unredeemed mankind in its depravity. Imagine living in a world with them like that. It will be unbearable, and yet those who are sent there will remain there forever. There will be remorse and regret. There will be bitterness and bile. There will be tears and anguish, and the very anger of God upon them for each and every one of their misdeeds. Who, who here would want to go to such a place? All the good things you enjoy in this world will be gone in hell. Every last single thing that you enjoy in this world will be totally gone in hell. So whatever or whoever you are clinging to for comfort in this world will not go with you into hell. There is no common grace of God to be found in hell nor in those who are sent there. Judgment enables us to preach Christ. Without knowing the goodness and the willingness of Jesus Christ the Saviour, 
Who would be so neglectful and careless to let themselves wind up in hell? Preaching judgment is good because we are warned about what we should avoid. Don't say you haven't been told. Preaching judgment is good because we can preach Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the guilty sinner's only way of satisfying the justice of God. Now, every single one of us, young and old, is a sinner. And we face certain judgment. And we deserve, we're all deserving of our own place in hell. And yet the greater, particular, redeeming grace of God in by that great redeeming grace of God, there is a pardon for sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It's amazing, isn't it? Every single one of us, a sinner, deserve to wind up in hell. And yet, the redeeming grace of God declares a pardon for sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole message of God's word, the Bible, is that Jesus Christ came into this world to bring life to the hopeless and helpless sinner. He came to save sinners from the condemnation that we've so eagerly and keenly earned and that we deserve. Jesus came to put right what we have put wrong. He came to clean us from our sins, pay our debt of sin with God, and he came to bring us to repentance, turning us from our sins, and to make us recipients of his greater grace, forgiveness, adoption, union with himself and to take us into glory with him when we inevitably die. And he did all this by his atoning death on the cross. That cross of agony and shame for him, where he paid our debt of sin, is a cross of forgiveness and blessing for us. The fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is our confidence in his completed and accepted work on our behalf before God. In hell, there is no one who has experienced the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Rather, those undeserving sinners, objects of God's grace are the individuals who are in heaven. Preaching judgment is good because it teaches us that we need a saviour from heaven, the perfect son of God. Let's put our trust in him. When Paul having escaped drowning, 
is also seen to be apparently immune to snake bite. Superstition makes the Maltese islanders flip their opinions about him from one side to the other. Paul's not a murderer, he's a god. Verse 6, Acts 28. Paul is mistakenly proclaimed as a god amongst men. And Paul would quickly inform them that he is no god at all. But he would use the fact of the miraculous saving from the snake to speak about Jesus Christ. We see him previously in Lystra, where he was falsely proclaimed a god before, where he said, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely humans just like you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from worthless, worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Paul is an apostle personally appointed by Jesus Christ and he would use the circumstances of his being a prisoner on the way to Rome, the circumstances of his shipwreck, and them all being saved on the very island of Malta as a means of preaching salvation to the Maltese through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would have been clear, so let me be clear. There is one way, only one, only one way to escape from the judgment and justice of God and the condemnation that sin deserves and that is for God's judgment to fall on someone else and that someone else is Jesus Christ be reconciled to God through the death of his son it says everyone Paul says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved so let's turn from our sin, which so easily besets us, and let's seek the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving forgiveness and life. Blessings. Do we use every opportunity to be good to others? Verse 7, the leading man on the island, Publius, immediately does what he can for the shipwreck and cares for them all for three days, entertaining them hospitably and courteously. That's no small act of generosity for nearly 300 people. And who knows, did they even have all the clothes that they needed? Um, is he likely put in place plans for longer-term care across the island and Publius took the lead in using every opportunity to do others good and while and Publius is doing this good to many others while his own father is suffering but it doesn't stop him so the question for us is do we focus too much on our own issues when there is still much good we can do elsewhere. Publius' father has a fever and dysentery, verse 8. 
Now dysentery is a very serious condition and it kills over half a million children a year, even nowadays. 2,000 years ago, before antibiotics and everything, how many people did it kill then? And Paul, desiring to repay kindness with kindness, the kindness of the hospitality is enjoyed at Publius's hand, he visits this very sick man and he prays for him and he lays his hands on him. So our, my question is, do we do what we can do for others? Now in the second half of verse 8, we see that God is gracious to heal Publius' father through Paul. And it's interesting here, isn't it? It's not Luke who heals Publius' father. Luke was a doctor after all, wasn't he? And, he, uh, and we see in this passage um, the, the use of the word we in verse 2. And the natives showed us unusual kindness because Luke is there with Paul at this time. And Luke the doctor doesn't cure Publius' father. But God, through the Apostle Paul, by prayer and with the laying on of hands, heals this very sick man. And it is God who goes on to heal the islanders sick in verse 9. And a wide door is opened in verses 9 and 10. The high-profile miracle of healing the governor's father that God does through Paul soon becomes very big news. The islanders bring all their sick to Paul for healing. So uh, an island-wide door is opened. And Paul uses it. Even the barbarian natives of Malta recognise that the power of God is at work amongst them in the healing of the governor's father in the survival of paul after the fatal snake bite in the testimony of the shipwrecked concerning paul's role in them all surviving the storm and all arriving safely at malta the maltese recognize god at work in the message paul himself preaches as he testifies by what power and in whose name he has performed all these miracles of healing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what looked like certain death in the storm just a few days before now turns into a wide open door for the gospel. And just as earlier in Ephesus and again at Troas a great door opened for Paul for the effective work of God through the preached gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and yet raised to life paying for our sins on that cross and the apostle is fulfilling his Christ-given mission of suffering much yes but nevertheless still witnessing to Jews and Gentiles and their kings. Knowing that they're on the island 
to winter has passed, I'm sure that Paul, Luke and the others used every opportunity to preach and teach the gospel. And actually we can be confident that many in that island community and perhaps even uh, some amongst the ship's crew and passengers came to faith. We can certainly see the evidence of it in verse 10 where Paul and his companions are honoured in many ways during their stay and handsomely provided for as they left the island. Honouring them is the natural heartfelt response of the saved who owe, who owe Paul their very selves as they honour those whose work is preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ. So we see that the irresistible, particular, saving grace of God flows to those who at first only displayed God's common grace to travellers in desperate need. There's a lot for us to learn there. After three months on the island, at the beginning of February AD 60, Paul leaves the island and sails on the final leg of his journey to Rome. But that'll be for next time. Thank you.